The whole time, well, not the whole time, but at like one point when he was talking about roadmaps, I just kept hearing Back to the Future, where we're going, we don't need roads. But maps. I mean, what? Maps? <laughs> where, where we're going, we don't need road Map. maps. I see. But he, but, You're trying to complete the joke say, for me. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I am joined by Sylvie Lubau, as always. Here we are, back again. Hey, guys. Hello. New setup for you today. Looks great. Trying different things. Trying different things, moving things around. Got to keep everybody on their toes, including me, including myself. Got to keep it fresh. Yeah. Am I seeing the same image? No. It looks like it's like a bizarre mirror, but it sounds like it's not. It's not. It's part of a triptych. Ah, classic. (laughs) A triptych. I love a good triptych. I've made a few triptychs in my day. Um, speaking of people who I don't know if they've made triptychs, Heaton Shaw's here as our <laughs> guest today. He's the CEO and co-founder of Nira. He's been building SaaS companies for 20 years. He's got four years on me. So a lot of insights, I'm sure, that I don't have. Um, <laughs> so excited to have him here. He's also the founder and creator of Crazy Egg, which I know tons of people use. Kissmetrics, which is when I think I first uh, met Heaton. And I'm excited to have him with us. He's a guy who loves building product and who has strong opinions. And it's, it's going to be a fun one. He's a hot take king. The hot take king. The hot, the hot take, take king. Heaton, yeah. the hot take king. <laughs> uh, speaking of hot takes, what's got you talking too loud, Sylvie? Okay. What's got me talking too loud? Well, I was trying to think of a hot take. Yeah, hot, what's your hottest take right now? My hottest take right now. My hottest take right now is that uh, Djokovic is going to win the Australian Open. It's my hottest take. It's probably not that hot. Okay. I forgot you're still so deeply into tennis now. Yeah, it's so fun to watch. And every time I watch it, I'm like, that's it. I'm signing up for tennis lessons. I'm ready to double down. I'm ready to be a player on the court, not in life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready to be a player. You know, I've been inspired by Djokovic. I'm ready to be a player. Um, He's going to win. Yeah. Tennis is like uh, your F1. It is. It is like my F1. Good good analogy. And uh, you know the people who made Drive to Survive the F1 show made Breakpoint on Netflix. Have you seen I that? I know. I haven't seen Breakpoint, but it's on my queue. I was like, let me just see if I like this thing. And I watched I got super into it. Of course you did. Like, this is why tennis is so great. <laughs> this is why I love this so much. <laughs> What's your hottest talking too loud take right now? My hottest talking too loud take... I'm pretty high on New England right now. I'm pretty high on like just how sick it is that, you know, I live in Providence, Rhode Island last, I think it was last weekend. It was like probably 40 degrees here. It's like abnormally warm. Um, But we're like, we wanted some snow. We got to hit the snow. So we drove up to Portland, Maine and like went cross country skiing and sledding. And it was like, you know, just under three hours or so to get there. I'm like, that's amazing. That's so nice. I live in this place. It's like, could be warm here and it could be snow there. And I'm tired of people in the Bay Area telling me just how great Tahoe is. Oh, and I have perfect weather in San Francisco, slightly foggy, but nice in October. And then, oh, and now I've got my, I got, we all got that too. We have that too. Okay. So that's, that's my hottest take. New England, everything's only three hours away. Wow. You are like a poster boy for New England right now. That's you. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, huge F1 head. Mm-hmm. Tech. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like things you'd find in New England, but here we are. <laughs> um, speaking of people you don't find in New England, let's cut over to that interview with Heat and Shaw. 
Heaton, so good to see you, man. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, it's great to see you. It's been a while. It has been a while. I was just... Sylvia, right before... First of all, Heaton was early for the recording. He beat me here. You were okay. early. I was late. You were late, <laughs> but he's here. I show up. He's here in uh, advance. I said, wow. early bird gets the worm. Yeah. That's all. That's what I said when I, he came on. I was like, before I said anything else. I feel so. like we need a new... The early bird should get something else. Like, let's retire worm. The cash? The early bird gets the cash. How about that? I like that. Okay, great. Works well, for me. I, like uh, <laughs> I was saying that last time he and I caught up was last summer. I called him for advice. Mm. And, or t- 2021, actually. So like a year and a half ago. And um, I, I, a lot of things in that conversation stuck out to me, Heaton. And like, we took a bunch of the stuff and used it. It was like really helpful. And I would say thank you for that. Nice. Um, and, and I'm excited for this conversation because I, I don't know where we're going. I don't know what, what we're going to pull out of this. But I know we're going to get some exciting insights. We're not going to talk about offsites, though, right? No. And in-person meetings for remote teams. We're not going to talk about any of that, right? As long as you don't want yeah. to. Uh, or we no, can. we can talk about whatever <laughs> yeah, you want. Yeah. But the, you tweeted about it, and it, 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 it didn't trigger me, but there are some things. But anyway. Well, so let's, we I do it against that. Like. But the, yeah. fir- the first thing I have to start with is I have to know, what's, what's got you talking too loud right now? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I can get into that mode on almost anything. That's why I'm like, uh oh, oh, no. Um, You know, the thing that is like on my mind, because I'm just seeing just a bunch of stuff related to it, is how bad most products are. Ooh. I just, and and this is probably a, a, a common theme for me anyway as you probably have some idea of sometimes i rant on twitter but a lot less lately because i have a lot of work to do at my company and i'm really focused on that work but like and it's not product work so that's probably why i get to go bitch and moan about it so to speak (laughs) in other areas but that's got me speaking loudly because i think that the products that we use today and i'm I'm specifically talking about b2b products Mm -hmm. i think consumer products have no room for this but um they're wasting our time. And with AI coming up, I, I don't think we're at a place where they're going to waste less of our time. I think they're going to waste more of our time because of AI until we settle into whatever the new normal of products and user experiences are with AI. Because a lot of people are trying AI products and they're probably not working as well as the promises that are made. But more importantly than that, like I'm today selling a B2B product. It's very mid-market and heading into enterprise really fast. And one of the reasons like we have to build what we are the way we are is because the products that are out there are failing the customers that we target. Um, and that just makes me kind of upset. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go deeper into that. Like why, why are there so many products that are bad? What makes a bad product? I think a bad product is one where, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but I think the biggest thing I would point out is like when the customers are frustrated when they're using the product. And I think that's very hard to tell um, for most companies that are large or have built these enterprise B2B products. Um, another factor that I really harp on, and, and some of this you can get away with in the early days and later on you can't, but like we don't have a support site for my company. We've been in this business, we pivoted. So we've been in this business about 18 months. There's no support site. There's no support pages. And that is intentional because if we need support pages, there's something wrong at this stage. Um, and so that's wow. where my head is. We do have support material. It is a customer success function, 
but it's not a support site. We don't link people to it, and it's not done that way. And so that's probably the most that's like bold. In, in part. Yeah, I know. Yes, I see Savage. Bold. Savage <laughs> yeah, is I'm, like raising his eyebrow. Yeah, and, I'm ready. I'm. And, I have many many questions. And I, I ran support as CEO as well for the first two years of my last two companies. And so this is not coming from like ignorance. It's actually coming from the opposite of awareness of the minefield of support docs and the maintenance of them and the crutch that the team across the board would use them as if we actually had them. And then how bad the product would get as a result of having those docs this early, because then people in the company would start saying, oh, we'll just explain it in the support docs. Okay. So explain to the audience, like what is Nira? And then also, um, how, I mean, you, you've always been someone who I think has really strong opinions and you have a lot of experience and you're quick to like take the experience and what you're seeing and apply it together. Like when we talked, we were talking about product managers like 18 months ago and you had some very strong feelings about that. And it was very helpful because the strong feeling is easier to react to and understand like where you fit yeah. with. Yeah. And the fact that, I mean, I didn't realize you have no support docs. I go to your website. Well, you're saying that I'm like, that's well, this seems true. And I, and I understand it, but I think give people the context on Nira and then give people the context on how do you even decide to go do that? Because it's so different than what everybody else is doing. I hope my opinions are loosely held. So I'm, I'm willing to change my mind just to, just to give that anecdote. So I'm even happy to change my mind today. Um, but <laughs> uh, what Nira is, is it's a tool that helps you basically protect company information from unauthorized access. The unique thing about Nira is that like it solves a problem that pretty much even employees, managers, executives have, but we're specifically selling the product to IT departments. The other unique thing about us is we're selling a security product to the IT department. And there's a bunch of reasons why, which we can get into if it makes sense, but that's kind of the TLDR. The simple truth is there's no way to see every item in let's say Google Workspace, so all the documents and manage who has access to them on a uh, administrative and security level. That might sound absurd because you would think Google, even Microsoft and others would have built these things, but they've been so focused on the collaboration side yeah. and the kind of equivalent of the consumer end user side and the employee side that the admin tooling is inadequate. And then more importantly, that admin tooling does not go across tools when you're dealing with Microsoft or Google. And the way this has all come about is that um, we're now dealing with more collaboration happening in those tools. Those tools are moving fast at adding even more capabilities around collaboration. And the administrative and security functions can't keep up with how fast those things are moving. And the, those companies will just toss these teams' APIs. And they'll say, hey, here's an API. Go figure it out. So certain companies that are like, mature, even the fast growing startups um, have large teams using those APIs and trying to build something close to what we have. Um, not a lot of teams, but enough teams where that was, you know, a key data point for us. And we started seeing that, like, why do they build it in house? And I've seen that over and over again in, in my career, at least. Um, I don't call it a career, but it's a good way to describe it. As a founder, it's hard to have a career. Yeah. Is kind of my statement. Uh, but um, so I've seen this story before where it's like, if people are spending a lot of time and money building something internally, 
and it really should be a SaaS service or a product that yeah. other people can buy or whatever. Sometimes those people come out and try to build it. Uh, in my case, we treat everything with first principles. We never dealt with IT people before. So we take a lot of notes when we do customer development. We're really staunchly on lean startup principles, customer development, things like that. And so we just want to build the right thing. What I like to say is I like to build new, different, and right. And I want to build teams that can do that. And that dovetails into the support stuff. But I'll pause there because uh, I could go off on this stuff for a bit. Um, but <laughs> yeah, where do you want to go with it? What I'm hearing is is like, you know, Wistia example, 175 employees. We use Google Docs. We use um, some Apple products. We use like different things to collaborate. In every one of these cases, it's like sometimes I'm inviting one person. Sometimes I'm inviting 175. Sometimes I'm inviting 10. Then you have people leaving and joining the company. You have people, every employee is doing this. There's like, you know, literally millions of op like connection points across this. What you all are doing is basically saying like, we're going to make it easy to understand that full picture, check for unauthorized access, remove access when people leave, grant access maybe. Is that right? So we're not an explicit offboarding and onboarding tool. There's a lot of those that exist. Yeah. Um, so the clarification would be we're about the items in the tools. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because those items are in near real time changing in terms of permissioning. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, people can be added and just some stats like an average of 13 collaborators on every document in Google across the board. And this is from Google itself saying this. And it's about seven for Microsoft. So what you said is accurate. And then you have things like, is it, does this document have a public link? Yeah. Does this document have a company link? How old is this document? And data retention and legal teams and compliance and auditors, all this comes into play. And so this is the mess I've been learning about for the last few years because I knew nothing about this until we got into it, which is my favorite place to be. Yeah. Because then you can come in with fresh eyes in a market that honestly our customers underserved. They have very little bandwidth and they have, they're burdened with making changes for almost everyone in the org. Well, it's also just like, as you said, it's a mess. It's a mess out there. Like it's a complicated <laughs> mess. And yeah. anyone getting in there and trying to get control over that is tough. And then also let's go towards like the support stuff. So you're dealing with a really messy problem with a lot of edge cases, I would imagine. How do you make oh, yeah. it so that you don't have any support documentation? So um, the familiarity people have with the interface is actually extremely important. And making sure that the role models that we used early on, which were actually um, Gmail and Intercom. And so what I do, and, and pr previously, when we had an enterprise search product before we pivoted into this, we had integrated into 24 different APIs and tools mm -hmm. and built this really cool interface for it. Our inspiration was actually Facebook's layout. And so what I'm always trying to do is figure out something after all the customer development work and the research of what's the problem to solve and some of the research of like um, alternatives to what we're trying to do, I'll spend some time trying to find user experience, user interface role models. And so even if you go to our homepage now, we finally have a screenshot. Now that I've told you the inspiration, you can look and be like, oh, right. That's where that totally. theory came yes. from. You can't just do this, though, and say, I'm doing that. And this is a role model. You have to do the research to say is it going to work with the way we want? And when we look at the products that are built from a B2B standpoint, they don't account for any of that. Or they're just picking a role model and just jamming features into the tool. I mean, in fact, like certain companies that are, you know, Fortune 100 companies have Fortune 100 customers of their own that have like two engineers supporting them 
for every feature they want. And they're just adding feature after feature into the product because the enterprise customer needed it. Yeah. And that's how we got in this kind of mess of wasting everyone's time with this. So part of it is I don't want to waste anyone's time when they're using our products. So support docs waste time is the kind of ideology coming in. So then we don't have support docs because they waste time. So then what do we do? Well, today we're not a self-service product. We can focus on learning a lot more about where people get stuck and all those things. And it can be a little more high touch, if not a lot more, because our price points can dictate that in our sales process. Um, so contextually, this works for us. That being said, even if we had a self-service product today, I'd probably feel very similarly and wouldn't have support docs if we could help it. Because it just it's basically like, where do you want to shift the responsibility of solving the problem for customers. Do you want to shift it to a customer support and success function? Do you want to keep it in product and engineering? And we've chosen to keep it in product and engineering instead of shift this burden to support and success. Well, what we see is a lot of companies stack the problem over on support and success. And guess what happens then? And I'll ask you, how many support people do you have today? How big is that team? Yeah, we probably have 20 people. Yeah. So 10% of your company, yeah. roughly, yeah. is support yeah no totally holy crap yeah no it's yeah (laughs) i'm dying it's a perspective that we haven't heard on this show and i haven't i I haven't really heard i haven't heard so that's why my eyes are popping yeah you're dealing with someone that's probably a little more aged than chris not a lot on building software it's been 20 years Right. So I got to come up with something new every year. Right. That like causes everybody to be like, what's going on? What are you talking about? You're an agent of chaos, just like Savage. Both of you. Yeah. That's why we get along. Yeah. So like, think of it this way. Like there's so many layers to this problem and people have historically thought it's okay to stack these areas with team members Yeah. because they're cheaper than engineers or whatever way you want to frame it, or you want to like really support customers and delight them or whatever, but that's not, that's just a solution to a problem we all have, which is our products need to constantly get better and become more usable, not less usable as we add features. That's a whole nother topic, but that's a problem. And if you pick the wrong structure or foundation for your product, this goes back to the role models, everything, it has implications down the line, like a domino effect, right? Our implications and are all positive and the dominoes are still standing, which is basically that we picked a good role model. So I'll say something else that's probably a little crazy, but I don't plan on adding product managers. There we go. There it is. (laughs) I will at some point, maybe. How many people are on the team right now? Uh, We're only 30 right now. And what percentage of the team is product and engineering? Uh, today it's like, I think 20 plus on product and engineering. Well, sorry, engineering. There is no product. Yeah, there's no product. My so sorry. Yes. But, yeah. My co-founder and I. Yes. Um, so two thirds of the company is mm-hmm. engineering. You, you guys are, you know, managing product stuff kind of, but maybe you should just go on this rant, the technical product manager rant. I feel like, I feel like you <laughs> should just let it loose. Yeah, so so the, the the philosophy on the product managers, not that I hate product managers, love them. I have a whole email list designed around product and stuff. Um, but it's basically about how do you get as close to the code as possible if your business is about code? And the way you get close to the code is by putting the onus on the engineers to figure out how to solve the problem. So the way we operate is that non-engineering product is about finding problems. 
then we might propose a solution or something, but we're not dictating the solution. A lot of product management is about dictating the solution. Instead, what we do is, hey, here are the problems. Here's how we think they might need to be solved. And I'm talking about like bigger features, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Little stuff just happens super, relatively fast and um, agile, if you want to call it that. And then basically, as we kind of go through that cycle, what's, what happens is engineering gets better and better at their own specs and their own requirements. Because what I've learned is that a product spec is very different than an engineering spec. And I don't want two. So how do we have one? Well, you just make it all engineering. And then it's like engineering will solve the problem as much as they want. They have the ownership of solving the problem because I'd rather have the people that are writing the code understand more about what they're building and why and not put so much of that onus on the communication from the product team about how we need to solve the problem uh, and things like that. And so a tradi traditional product management doesn't work that way typically. And that's why like, I don't think companies, it's, it's the same as the support thing. It's like, where do you want this responsibility? And I'd rather have the responsibility fully on engineering for the solution. That way they take ownership of the solutions they produce. This has had tremendous impact for us. And here's why I say that. Already in B2B, you can be much slower, especially if you're mid-market or enterprise, from a product iteration cycle. If you're early like us, and this pains me to say it, probably building in a new category. Mm -hmm. And with IT and security, these categories do not show up. And every single category in the space, except one or two out of like 15 or 20 is failed. Mm -hmm. Like the customer doesn't even use the terminology anymore. So when we heard all these kinds of things, we're just like, oh, like the products suck. And how do we make a product that doesn't suck? We make sure that engineers take responsibility over the code they're writing, not as in like, did it work or not, but did it hit the mark or not? And it's not their responsibility to judge it. It's ours as non-engineering product people, but it's their responsibility to get it right. That's kind of how we think about it. So that might be a more refined rant than the one we went on. No, it's yeah. very similar to the, to the rant that you gave me. Okay, good. But I, it's interesting because like when we talked in 21, we were working on a lot of stuff and then a lot of big things came out in 22. We launched like a video editor. We changed yep. our pricing model. A ton, and we launched a live platform. And as you're talking, I was thinking a lot about our live platform because it went incredibly well. The launch went incredibly well. The product that came out of the gate was really good, but the iteration's been really fast. And what we saw is that we had like an engine engineering was truly in partnership with product on the solutions from the get go. And nice. when I was talking to you, that was not exactly how we were doing it. It was more like more just product first. And the difference is pretty remarkable. And you made a point which I think is relevant to everybody. Just like if someone's coming up with the solution and they don't code, they don't know how hard or easy that solution is. They don't know if that solution is going to work. Um, they may be missing something that is 10 times better. And so if you don't actually have engineering involved early enough, you can miss the best products you could ever build, right? That's right. And I think that really resonated with me. And I thought a lot about it as we've been like evolving the way we've been working. And I mean, you're giving the goods today. You're, you're sharing it all. And I, I hope <laughs> anyone who's like watching or listening is like really taking notes on this. The other thing I would point out that I think is really interesting is, you know, when you talk about the role models um, and having the role models, I don't know that everyone always thinks like that. And I didn't either. Like, how do you get to that? <laughs> I'll tell you, shove that in my face without knowing it. 
um, David Cancel over at Drift when he was building Drift. And he's someone who I have a lot of appreciation for what he has done and how he has done it. And I studied like how he did it. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons is I had to compete with him in the past. And then I became an advisor yeah. to Drift, so I didn't have to compete with him. And we had a good... <laughs> yeah, everything good, worked out. No, it, yeah. was never, it was never a bad relationship, but it was always like tenuous yeah. until then. Because <laughs> uh, he decided to get into the analytics game at some point and then sold to HubSpot. So then it was cool. But um, And I, I helped them with a bunch of other stuff, not product stuff too much. Um, I have lots of opinions on how they did product, both good and bad. But the one thing I took away is um, they kept talking about role models constantly, almost every time I was talking to them. Hmm. And they use that as a way to hack the process of getting started. That's the way I would describe it. For example, Drift started as a rip of intercom. Like point blank, I can say that. They would say that. Mm -hmm. It is fact. Mm -hmm. But the way they use the strategy to go from an intercom rip to where they ended up was amazing to me. Because that role model, in their case, this wasn't the case for us, but in their case was used as a discovery method. You build that, you see how people use it, and then you find your differentiating points from there. It is very rare for anyone to think like that and do it like that from the get-go, but David Cancel is someone who's done it over and over again, and he has a specific style, not saying it's for everyone, and he doesn't care about the rip in the beginning and the noise he gets from it, because he got a lot of noise from it early on, Yeah, and they did as a team, but it was almost like he took pride in that noise, if that makes sense. But as I watched the company iterate and them like slide around, they found opportunities Intercom completely missed, even though Intercom's great at product. No one would say they're not, right? No, even yeah, I, yeah. who am very critical, I can point shots at jobs to be done and their frameworks and some of the crap, but I can't say anything but great things about their team and how they build product to the point where they were one of our role models, yeah. right? Um, Gmail more so, though, for a number of reasons, but they were close because we had some things we had to do that were more like them. And so the role model concept is, I think, extremely powerful. And, and I'm always the one to do, do everything different. I don't want to copy. And once I realized the role model wasn't about copying, yeah. it was more about what's good for the customer and what are they familiar with. Yeah, get different and faster. how can they... Yeah, like you come into our tool, you've never seen it before. And we have something called an employee security portal. So even the employees are using our tool in a, in a very mm-hmm. specific fashion. And I've never seen this done before, but we did it. The tool the admins use and the tool the employees use are almost exactly the same, except the employee side has appropriate limitations. Admins can see everything across the company. Um, employees can only see their items. But it's basically the same interface. We just have like three or four areas not accessible for employees, right? And the employees are coming back to these IT people and saying something unheard of, which is, hey, we love that tool. Thank you. And the tool just spreads inside an org when someone uses it to say, oh, crap, all these personal accounts are on my documents. I didn't know that. I removed them. Then, And this happened yesterday. That employee goes and tells their whole team, hey, you need to log into this tool and just yeah. clean this up because there's customer data we're leaking and we shouldn't. And the IT person had nothing to do with it, yeah. which is what IT and security wants. We wouldn't have been able to do that without having really strong role models that were good at user experience already. Gmail is obviously great at user experience. You could argue about some of their changes and the button colors on this crap or whatever, the blues or whatever, but from an information architecture standpoint- it's very clear. It's great. I agree. So Drift used the role model 
to discover a business. This is how I'd say it. We use the role model to have a construct and we really focus on the information architecture. There's a couple things in Intercom that we didn't like either that we thought we could do better and we did those better. And then also to what you're talking about before, most products are bad. Like if you have the right role model and it's actually has a great, you know, interface and experience, people understand it quickly to your point. Like I haven't heard of many IT tools that, you know, teams are suggesting to each other that they should go use, but that's what ends up happening, right? If you end up differentiating in a place where there's lots of bad products or it's not well understood. Right. You know, you said something else, which is also like, you have a few more years on me, which you do and is great. And not a lot. No, but a a few, you know, 16 for me. And I have to ask the question, you know, you're, I'm learning a bunch of stuff right now. I haven't really thought about the role model thing that much. We've talked about the technical product manager thing before. What are the other things now that you're doing that are like the hacks that those, like that extra time, that extra effort, like that extra learning that you're using that are really, you know, accelerating or changing things for the business? I feel very lucky. Uh, I feel very, very lucky to have met my co-founder. Our skills are complementary and the values on how we think about product and stuff are aligned, even though she came from CPG. So her her last official job was about six or seven years ago when she left, was at Diageo, and she had like five executive roles there, innovation. She did M&A before that, but very much on product on that side of the house. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that is probably the hardest thing for any organization to do um, is what I would say and I've, I've talked to folks at Buffer about this and they've repeated it back, um, is scale customer development uh, as the company grows and make sure that that's still an, an ingrained thing. And I don't think it's just customer development. It's the concept of when you talk to a customer, a prospect, anyone that's going to potentially use or buy your product, you know everything they said. And you can then map to so many things. So we have literally 5,000 pages in Google Docs across many different docs of notes. And Marie, my co-founder, is like the stickler on that. And she leveled me up there. And I was already like into it. But now I'm just like, oh. And, and the whole team's designed that way. The SDRs, the sales team, like everybody. Your, your it's not mind like, readers, yeah. like you know exactly what they're going to say are their pain points. You know exactly what. Because we've taken so many notes. We could go back three years and be like, oh, that CIO said that three years ago, which maps to what this CIO said today. Got it. Oh, crap. And if you don't have that, you can't build a roadmap. You can't ship what they need. I can tell you honestly today, based on all of that stuff we've done, we have an unlimited roadmap. Like there's no shortage of what to build why to build it, how to build it. It's just more of the sequencing of how do we build it so we earn the right to keep building the next thing, which is sequencing is the trick, not prioritization, probably a separate rant. But like those notes are like the dirty, dirty secret that no one wants to hear, nobody wants to do, but they change the whole game for a whole business. And because yeah, you don't lose the data. Yeah, you yeah. don't lose the information. You're saying because what a lot of people do is, you know, you have a sales rep who's having a bunch of conversations. They don't write it down or they don't write it down in a centralized place. You go and ask the sales rep what customers want and they tell you, but they don't remember everything. You know, their own biases are impacting what they're telling you about and blah, blah. And then multiply that across everybody. You don't actually have an accurate view. Now let's throw away the fact that like the team's changing. You know, some people who are sales reps are no longer sales reps. Some people have joined the company. Some people have left the company. You don't have the holistic brain yeah, and the brain people think, like people at Stripe yeah. and other companies think it's documentation and a writing culture. Yeah. 
my opinion, it's a note-taking culture. Okay. Right? Because where do those documents and all those things come from? They come from either someone's brain, yeah. which usually is someone's notes. Yeah. So I go back to the core and the root. The root isn't you need all these frameworks and documents yeah. and you should have a document or writing culture, which I think is great. And we don't have that like Stripe does. But what we do have is the note-taking culture. And that allows us to just come back to that stuff. That allows us to, like today, if there's a feature, go, hey, Marie, we've got this feature. Like it should be one of like the next features we do or whatever. Yeah. She's like, okay. And then she's like, I'm going to go find all the notes on that. I'm going to go, I'm going to write up a doc and find it in like literally 20 minutes, 10 minutes. And she's got this doc, like five pages, three pages of everything we heard, who said it, when they said it. And it's like, oh, cool. Well, shit. Like, we don't even need to go talk to more people. We already have all those notes for some obscure thing that we're now going to add that we heard over and over again over like three years. Right. Like, yeah. And that's also why no product managers today. Yeah. Because all when there. we get them, yeah. they need to and they also need to be trained in this way, not in what traditional crap they're trained in at Google or whatever company they come from or whatever the hell it is, because they're trained completely differently. And in fact, they don't even know how to learn about problems from customers most of the time because their job is so entrenched in writing specs. That's interesting. And what do you think of the tools that like automatically record, transcribe your meetings? Like, is that a replacement or would you, what do you think? <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, that's a layup. Um, <laughs> I think that anything that makes it so that your brain is not synthesizing what you're hearing is problematic. So if we were to do those recordings or uh, anything like that, we would want to jointly summarize if there were multiple people on the call, what we heard as soon as possible after the call so we could interpret what was really being said and our interpretation of it. I'm not saying those tools are bad, but they make people lazy. Yeah. And so even like Gong and things like that, mm -hmm. those are great for accountability, but people end up using them for notes. And that's why we don't do that. Also, our customer, I feel really weird when I get on a call and the record button's already hit. And our customers, IT and security teams, they feel even weirder. And if they say to record, we will absolutely record. But we do not like asking for the recording. And a lot of companies have done it where the gong thing shows up right away. They don't even ask you if it's okay to record. Yeah. You know how pathetic that is? That's not ethical. Like, come on. Yeah. Well, it depends on your opinion. I, I think it's just pathetic. I think it's just... <laughs> I think it's just wrong. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, don't record me without asking. And this stupid <laughs> pop-up comes up and you're like, WTF? And, like, my co-founder has gotten, like, pissed and on some calls. She never gets pissed, but she's like, hey, don't record me. It's interesting. She didn't ask yeah. for it, right? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. We, we use this tool in interviews called Pillar. Have you seen that one? Yeah. Um, which has been helpful for us. And, you know, we ask everybody like, is this okay? Basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things that's been interesting is like fighting bias and stuff. Cause people will have their perception of how the interview went and they're trying to suss out all this information. Then we can go back and be like, we'll ask them to go back and say like, Hey, can you take another look at the interview? And what I found is kind of to your point, like if you were to rely only on the notes that are automatic, you miss sometimes like, Oh, I did ask this question and they gave me a great answer. And I was, but I was getting ready for my next question. I wasn't ready. So it's, it's an interesting thing trying to find the balance because there's like an unlimited number of these tools now. And like, should you use all of them or is it too much? When is it too much information? Or your point on like the synthesis of this and who's doing that is really, that's a big question. Especially this world of AI, that's a big question. Like who is doing it? Is it you or the machine? Yeah, I think, I, I think we're headed into worse products because of that. Yeah. I really do because the interpretation of everything and if you can't interpret the stuff correctly, you're not gonna build the right product. 
and not building the right product is death. Yes, and you're not you're not trusting the machines to be able to interpret it correctly. I haven't seen AI being able to interpret most things very accurately. I, I've seen them help you sort and filter and like get down to things, but then you know with Chat GPT three or whatever, like the amount of like false information in there is pretty high. So you can't even trust what yeah. you get from it. And I'm not knocking it. I love this stuff. Yeah. Like big big on any new technology. I don't care what it is. Like let's go dive in and figure it out. But we gotta we gotta be honest about the problems, right? So I think the over reliance on it is gonna happen. It hasn't happened yet. And then we're gonna see a cycle of that biting people somehow. Like I don't know if it happens on product or other areas. I actually feel like it's gonna happen on marketing first. Yeah, I mean, well, that's like the whole. I mean, we, you know what? Let's not go too far down this because I have other questions. That we're now running low on time. Okay, I have to go back to the remote thing, and let me set the context, and then I want your opinion. So, yeah, of course. Um, we just did what we call a triannual business review because we didn't like quarterly right things; it was too much. And basically, it's like we have our OKRs that are set. We get together with a, like the directors and up in the business, and um, people present on like. They send everything in advance so you can like read and watch stuff in advance. And we're trying to just have discussion. Um, we've done this remotely. This time we're doing it in person. And the goal is like we pre-COVID were very in person. Now we're extremely remote. But we still try to have these like events to help create more trust, like help make it easier for people to push back and argue and disagree when you're, they're not in person. Um, so we did that. It went well. It was super energizing. And it was interesting though, because like, I have a sense of where we're going to go, but I'll just say this point. Like when we closed up, one of the things I said was like, look, we had a great, like, there was a lot of learning that happened in this room. There was a lot of like ad hoc stuff that happened, but to get this to happen when we're remote is different. Like it takes much more conscious effort to like document, write up, send, you can't have the run in and all this kind of thing. Um, and it's, a, and I find it hard is the truth, like to have this balance. Cause on the one hand, so does a presentation, three people walk up to them and you have this like sync, but that inherently means that no one else knows what was said. It isn't in a public Slack room or whatever. So that's what we did. Um, but I'd, I'd love your perspective cause you, you had a strong reaction. So I'm wondering what it is. <laughs> Two remotes. Uh, so I've been an advisor to buffer. I've been an advisor to automatic. Those are two different spectrums of full-on remote. So I have an advantage to most people on it. And then on top of that, I've done remote myself for 20 years. So here's the thing I notice about offsites and remote. People save, this is like the biggest one, I would say. People save important work for the offsite. I don't want that in my company. Just not okay. Important work should happen all the time. Yeah. I don't care if it's strategy work, tactical work, whatever. I don't think we need a chunk where we're doing something like that. And and yes, as you scale, you need chunks of like, you know, planning and stuff like that. Totally get it. But I don't want the requirement that we're in person to do those chunks. Yeah, because then you I slow down that, and I saw that yes. over I saw that over and over again at both those companies. Um, my conclusion about remote, and it's still the same, is most remote companies are about 70% as efficient at best compared to office. And some of these things are related to that. It's a little bit of a side note. So how I feel about offsites is if I can help it, and I'm not the only one that's in charge of this, so that's the caveat, but if I can help it and I have the wherewithal to like fight this, I will make sure we never have an offsite ever. I will make sure nobody ever meets up in person as a company like we're all going to meet up um, because that's one problem. Another yeah. problem is I actually believe those offsites are disruptive to work. Like I've been to offsites with Buffer. I've been to the enormous automatic offsites. 
I'm not at all saying anyone else should take any of my advice on this, right? Yeah. Because I understand how humans operate. I am not an introvert in the classic sense at all. And I love people, you know that, yes, Chris, yes. And, like, and like socializing yeah. and all that. But you know what? Honestly, do people really want to do that with their company <laughs> and their team? Let's like really put it out there for real, right? I didn't choose these people, so to speak. The, oh, that's fair. The team members did not choose these people as friends. And yes, you can be friends with people. You can do that. But so my whole attitude about this is like freedom of time and people should have that. And if you create all these constructs where you need to be in person to get certain things done, even if it's really great work, strategy work or whatever, I feel like you're kind of like going backward from where where we've been trying to get to as even a society. Wow. Look, this is. You know, you, you're a man of extreme opinions and I love it. And I, you know, I don't think we definitely don't agree on everything, but I, I love the way when you frame these problems and push that causes me to think differently. And I'm sure, um, it is going to cause our audience to think differently. Um, it was actually also, you know, Patrick Lancioni. I mean, I don't know him personally, but you, like, I don't know him personally, but I know who you're he just about. like, I listened to some podcast he did recently. Who's talking about exactly what you're talking about, which is like hmm. the question of, in the world where now so many people want remote work, does that actually mean that we need to be more clear about like, do you want just true like transactional work in that like, you do your job, you do it, it's this time, you walk away, you don't have to do anything else. Or the people who want like relationship building at work, which is like a separate different thing. And like, what's confusing is everything in the middle. And like, just be more clear. Like, which which no, like, extreme are you on? We have a team member in Barcelona. I love him to death. He's like, one of my only reports, he's our growth manager. He does a lot of stuff for us on the marketing, whatever side. I've never met him in person. We have a uh, content writer that's on our team. She She's traveling. Yeah. She goes and has dinner with him. I'm jealous. Yeah. <laughs> I love this guy. Yeah. But I have no intention of ever seeing him in person in my life. If it happens, great. But like, <laughs> there's no intention, right? Like, it's just really fascinating. I've never met him in person. Yeah. No, that's wild. Look. We are basically out of time here, Heaton. And so there's so many other things I want to talk to you about. So if you're up for it, I think you should come back and we do, another, part do another episode. Yeah, more than up for it. Part two. Yeah, more okay. than up for it. Yeah, of course. Uh, okay, great. Well, yeah. you heard it here first. Heaton will be back. We'll do a part two with Heaton. Um, where can people connect with you uh, if they want to learn more, follow you? Where should they go? Find me on Twitter, HN Shaw. Fun story there. My dad's first car had that license plate. It was Heaton Nippin. That's my dad's name. Shaw, so that's been my Twitter handle and that's, my Gmail. So you can always you can always try to email me too. It's all good. Perfect. But yeah, it's H N S H A H at on Twitter. Um, Heaton, thanks so much for being here. This is a delight, and uh, thanks for having me. I Same. look forward yeah. to the next episode when you come on. Likewise. We set up that Heaton is the king of hot takes. But I hope that delivered. I hope that <laughs> delivered. Don't you think? I think it did. I feel like the way that Heaton at least builds companies today is just so different. Like everything that he was saying, like no support team, no uh, product managers. Like my mind was just like, blah, blah, blah. like I cannot compute. You were kind of laughing. You were kind of like, you know, your eyebrow was going up. Like, you don't agree with everything that he's saying. So, like, where did you land during his hot takes? I think my where I land is Heaton knows the power of being different. Being different is a superpower. And um, doing things differently 
doing the right things differently is a superpower, right? And it's pretty hard to learn things when everything feels nuanced, which a lot, I think a lot of the answers for me are like, well, like the triennial business review is a perfect example. Most of our stuff is remote. Like the majority of the work that we're doing, which I think is like the most important stuff is the actual work itself is remote. This thing is in person right now. And there were some people calling in remote and like, I don't have the extreme opinion that he does that. I never want to see these people in person. So someone who's going to work at Wistia is going to want like huge flexibility, but they're going to want to feel connected. They're going to want that as part of the, the thing that they get. But it's when you hear that extreme thing, I just think to myself, like, which of these things can I steal? Which of these things, when it's said in its purest form, are the things that we can replicate and do over and over again, or can cause us to do something different. And it's almost like easier to learn from someone like Eaton than it is from someone who's giving you the full nuanced thing, because the truth is every situation is different. And, and like always this comes down to what can you take away from a conversation? What can you take away from a learning and how do you apply it? So there, I, there's a lot of stuff in what Heaton said that I think we can apply. And there's things from the last time we talked about where he said, you know, no product managers for me, we do have all that other infrastructure and customers and, you know, people on success and support and sales, which is complicated. Having the product manager is incredibly important, but also having that like unified front between product manager and in our case, like tech lead and designer is critical to solving those problems. And his thing, what he says, right. Like if a product manager makes this, this huge list of things to build and no one and the engineers aren't involved, it won't work. But a lot of people do it like that. So yeah, I'm trying to pull the nuance out. I'm trying to listen really hard. I'm trying to question yeah. myself. And usually I learn more when I do that. So, I mean, it's like why it's so fun to chat with him. Yeah. I mean, I think something I appreciate about Heaton is his boldness. Like he's bold, but he's also yeah. like, I'm not telling you to take my advice. So like he, he's able to be bold and share what he's sharing, but also not like prescriptive. So yeah, it's kind of up to you, listeners, watchers. Like, what do you want to take out of Heaton's talk? And that's how you do have to do everything. Yeah. And I think it is, it's almost like your biggest job in your job is to decide, you know, yeah, what, which of this advice that I'm taking, which of this input should I be taking, should I actually do? Totally. It kind of touches on something we, we talked about in the interview, which was like the automated like AI thing versus like the human yes. interpretation. And like yes. part of your job as a human, this feels like it's getting like sci-fi. But part of your job is like no, this yeah. is how we talk now. This is there's <laughs> what? there's AIs around us that are doing things, and there's humans, and we just we have to work with them. <laughs> All right, we've derailed now, but oh, to, come to on. punctuate it, I was just gonna yeah. say, yeah, like what you distill. That's that's top. <laughs> now I lost it. Now it's gone. But no, we, no, you're saying it's important to figure out like you, you need to like take you away need to what's right for things you. for yourself. Yeah. Yes. And you need to figure out what works. You need to feel comfortable with the the risks that you're taking, the things that you're doing. Yes. That you believe in them. And I think that well a lot of what we're talking about is like you're taking all this advice and trying to figure out which advice should you take, what should you not? When should you take a risk? When should you do something differently? It's about training the instinct so that you're ultimately making better decisions when things are really complex. And, you know, someone like Heaton is an amazing person to train your instinct with because he's so bold and he has so many different opinions and he really does think from first principles. It can accelerate that, I think. Damn. 
So Damn. take what you All want right. from the hot take king. There you go. That's my well, slogan. That's the slogan. Take what you want from the hot take king. Um, and we want to take from you reviews and feedback. So uh, please email us at ttlpod at wistia.com if you have ideas for guest topics. If you have questions for Heaton for the next time he's on, please send them in, ttlpod at wistia.com. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm C. Savage on Twitter. Sylvie, give me, give the, me loot. the loot. Also on LinkedIn, uh, you can always email us. And the last thing I would say is if you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you listen to it. That helps spread the word. Um, it helps more people find the show, helps us out, and we appreciate it. Sweet. Sweet. And we have to start giving away these hats. Oh, yeah. We got to give away hats. the hats. We'll, I, we'll come up with that for next start time. Start with me. Then I'll put the hat we'll on. Give the hat away to you. Then okay. I'll have the idea. But I need the okay. hat first, you know? We can do that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye, Sylvie. Bye, Savage. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.